Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Charlie Morris. Charlie Morris, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here, Tim Paul. Awkward silence. Well, I thought you were going to follow up, Tim. So um, no, no, look, no. I was, I was just I was okay. being deliberately obtuse. So, Charlie, um, do you want to just give us a recap about what you what you do and what you've been doing since we last spoke, which has been over a year? Yes, I think when I last spoke to you, I probably wasn't all in crypto, but I am now. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, I, I set up a firm called Bytree many years ago. So I, I came from the city. I'm a city boy by trade. And um, uh, set up a bike tree some some years ago, and the the the, the aim there was really to to um, provide data and research and asset management um, around the space, very very high quality products, pitching to the city, not not necessarily retail. And the view the vision was that I had in 2013 was that that a portfolio really should should not think twice about having a small exposure to crypto. And it, they, the argument will become more and more obvious over time. And so there's going to be an opportunity for um, uh, for, for, for companies that are really going to make the argument and make it easy for the financial services industry. Now, sorry, unfortunately- sorry, sorry to cut in, um, Charles, but just, just for the benefit of people who aren't, who aren't, say, full-time market watchers, do you have a definition of exactly what cryptocurrency constitutes? Uh, well, two-thirds is Bitcoin, Ethereum, and stablecoins. Um, of the three trillion dollar market cap at the moment, yeah, you know, two thirds of those three three areas. But is essentially, we're talking about a currency that isn't issued by a government or central bank. Oh yeah, sure, Bitcoin. We're talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum, basically, and uh, there's a whole load of other stuff that we probably don't need to don't need to talk as much about. But uh, but it's there. Yeah. So basically, oh yeah. So we'll we'll start at the, at the beginning, shall we? What is what is what is Bitcoin? Well, it's um, it's interesting because if you try and shut it down, there's no one to to call. There's no, there's no one in charge. Um, it's a network of computers that support it. And it's, 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 a, it's a sort of, some people like to say it's a law unto its own, but no, it's just, a, it's just a hard asset that's been recreated on the internet. And when I first discovered Bitcoin in 2012, I thought it was a ridiculous idea because you could cut and paste it and have two Bitcoins. But I was very wrong and I realized how wrong I was the following year in 2013. And that's when I became fascinated by it. So once you realize, that, um, that that bitcoins really are highly secure instruments and can't be cut and paste, um, and there's a limited supply like there is gold and, and, and other precious items. You know, it becomes a thing, and it's taken a while for them for it to catch on. But this cycle is really is really the first cycle that I can remember. I've lived through three now, and and it's the first one I can remember when it's starting to feel real. All the others, it was subject to, to, to craziness. And I think it's one of the reasons is because so much of the bad news has been flushed out. You know, who's going to ban it? Who's, who's going to allow it? Now, these were all questions a few years ago. Now we've had answers to most of those. And if someone's already banned it, then that's actually good news because all they can do is unban it. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, can you ban something that's, that's, that's exists purely in the digital realm? Uh, you can't ban it, but you can ban the interaction with the with the um, real economy. So you right. can make it very difficult to use banking services with the space, for example. Okay. You, you were saying, if I could just circle back to your comment about the data that you were providing to the city, I was quite interested in what that actually was. Um, was it um, equity research, or, or what was that data that you were initially providing? Well, I'm a fund manager by trade. 
yeah. uh, like and also um, uh, like Jim who was at South Bank for many years I, I write the Fleet Street Letter there so I have a, a part time gig doing that do you still do that? I still do that oh, right, I, nice. I, and Bond and uh, precious metal round. That's really who I am, with a hobby in crypto that's got out of hand. Uh-huh. I think the way to think about it. And, and as a, as a, you know, I was sitting in HSBC asset management in 2013, looking at this Bitcoin thing. I was running multi-asset portfolios. I ran portfolios that had, um, you know, uh, corporate and government bonds. They had um, um, hedge funds. They had um, different equity allocations. They had some precious metals, all of those sort of good things. And so I was very much into diversification and came along crypto and said, this portfolio needs to have 2%, realizing it was quite impossible at the time for two reasons. One, you know, basically you were considered a prior just reading talking about it. And uh, But the second reason, there was actually no legal way you could have actually put um, a Bitcoin into a portfolio back then. That's changed. There are ETFs now in Switzerland and so forth. But is, is that is that because the regulator is wary slash hostile? I think in 2013 the regulator didn't know what Bitcoin was. So you're I'm not right. sure the regulator knows much about anything now. So well, what I mean by didn't know what it was, I mean really hadn't heard of it. Yeah, so he, might, he might have done at the end of that year and then started making up rules. But at the beginning of that year, they they really had no idea what it was. Few people had heard of it, in fact. And, and there definitely was an investable product that, that would have um, got through a typical risk committee. Right. So, so ByteTree existed before your interest in, in crypto, didn't it? And then, then sort of morphed it. ByteTree was founded formally in 2014. Um, and and uh, that was really to build data and research and financial products around Bitcoin. Around Bitcoin, so so yeah. so you saw the writing on the wall back then. So yeah, that's that's amazing. So what what sort of data do you uh, obtain, and how do you process it, and how do you gain an advantage in perhaps predicting where Bitcoin will go or, or where the space will go using that data? Well, like all markets, um, I just I just see how useful the data is before I tell you what it is. <laughs> back in 2013, 14, any information you can get hold of of what was going inside of, going on inside a blockchain was extremely useful. And um, as time has passed, the markets got bigger and more efficient, and so data is definitely not as useful as it once was. I mean, there were howling gaps in the price from time to time, as in too high or too high in 2013 was obviously too high. But more importantly, in 2015, the price was trading at 200 and you could easily see why it should have been 500, then 800. And then it finally started to move. So there was a long period of undervalued Bitcoin in 2015. But you you, you say that as though it's it's completely obvious. How, How would you have worked that out? Well, it was obvious if you were looking in the right place. And that was because... Bitcoin has a job to do, and that is to transfer value. So if it's transferring lots of value, then it's doing its job very well. And if it's not transferring any value at all, then it's not worth anything. So the, the code has no value. It's the network that has value. Yeah. You can cut and paste Bitcoin, call it um, something else, and it, it's worthless because you haven't got the network that Bitcoin has. And so that really is the most important thing. So you're just measuring that. So you're measuring the dollar value that's going across the chain, um, you're measuring the number of transactions. You're looking at the behavior of the miners. You're looking at the new supply, like the inflation rate of how, how quickly it's printing. You know, back then, um, the inflation rate of Bitcoin was very high. It was, you know, it was double digit. Um, but now it's down to 2% and falling. So, so you know, it, it's grown up and things have changed a great deal. 
And we publish a lot of this data. It comes out block by block. So roughly speaking, every 10 minutes, you get a, a new little packet to, to look at. You see that $50 billion is changing hands each week. Uh, Bitcoin's about to have it, or was it just had it, uh, its 800th million uh, transa uh, transaction since 2009. You know, the numbers are getting pretty pretty real. And so so you, the way you described it just then, perhaps unintentionally, it made it sound like you were less bullish on Bitcoin. Um, should we start with your your outlook for it uh, in terms of price over the over the coming years um well i think i think everyone who's thought about it has to be because it's it's doubled 20 times or more and it's up um percent it's created a, tr a trillion dollars of value right so if you got in when it was worth a few dollars um i think the, the original market cap of bitcoin when it came to market was two hundred fifty thousand dollars in 2010 now, you never see an IPO at $250,000. Now, some people bought then, and those people that did have just seen the highest return um, uh, you, can, you can ever imagine, creating a trillion dollars of value. Now, if Bitcoin goes to $10 trillion, that means the price, roughly speaking, goes up 10 times from here. But it's already been up, you know, 100,000 times or whatever. So, what, is, what is the taxable status of those gains? Are those, are those subject to capital gains tax? CTT, yes, in the yeah. UK. And most, I think the argument, the legal argument on taxation is whether it's property or not. And most people, most most courts have said it's yes, it's property. Mm. Which is fair, but yeah, I think that's fair enough. So, so, so Charlie, are you saying that you, you don't think that Bitcoin will have the growth from here just because the numbers are getting so big? Um, or or, or do, you, do you actually think in price terms it will it will continue or, or, or there'll be other technologies that... Are improved and will will take it over. Um, all of the above are possibilities. I think that you know what I've just said about, the, about being less bullish. I'm still suggesting it grew up ten times and create ten trillion dollars of value, which is pretty bullish. But that's nothing like as bullish as the journey you've had in the last ten years, creating one trillion dollars in percentage gain terms. If that makes sense. Yes, and so there's there's many people who were bullish who have changed. I mean, some of the notable uh, people, or uh, for example. Uh, Elon Musk seems to have flipped on it a little bit, saying he he liked it, and then he said he didn't, and who, who knows what he's thinking. But but the one that we've asked many guests about has been the the Taleb argument that it requires a lot of work to keep Bitcoin alive, and therefore he thinks eventually it will go to zero. Other people have suggested that there are long term problems, probably probably not in the next few years, but coming down the pipe will mean that other technologies will, will will be better. And I know you've suggested that that is obviously a possibility, but what um, percentage chance or how would you attribute as to whether those are r very real risks or something we just should stop worrying about and just get behind it? Um, well, I, well, I'm definitely, you know, having, having, having lived through .com, I'm definitely pro-creative destruction. And I... You know, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I don't. I don't think that it could. Um, that it's impossible that it's surpassed or superseded by something else. It may well be. I don't know. I'm not that kind of analyst. Um, I, I take it each day as, as it comes, and I look at the information before me and 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 update my view and form a view. Um, the, the long-term issue with Bitcoin is actually the inflation rate becomes too low because that's what pays the miners. So in uh, you know right now we're going to be printing. Um, um, $50 billion worth of Bitcoin between now and March 2024, which is the time that the Bitcoin um, uh, next had a halving. And um, there are, hundred, sorry, I had to look at the top of my, my head here, 107,000 blocks between now and 2024 
will be mined with six and a quarter uh, Bitcoin in each block. So it's around 700,000 BTC, something like that, and worth $50 billion. That's hard cash that goes to the miners. Now, after the next halving, it goes from 6.25 to um, 3.125 Bitcoins per block, and it keeps halving every four years thereafter. So by the time you get to about 2050, the block reward um, doesn't have much Bitcoin in it in terms of number of Bitcoins. Now, some people say, well, the price will be so high that who cares? Possibly, maybe that's true. But the other side to it is that you pay fees when you transact Bitcoin. Currently, that's about $3.50 per transaction. That last April, it was about $50. So it moves around depending on um, supply and demand for blockchain capacity. And those fees are about 10 or 15% of all miners' revenues today, having been practically zero 10 years ago. And they'll be 100% in 50 years' time because that's all that will be left. And so, so that criticism you've just mentioned is probably the Taleb thing, um, although I don't like Taleb. I think he's a complete tosser, actually. I'll tell you why later. But the, the, the block reward, as it's known, may not be sufficient to, to, to incentivize miners to do the job of maintaining the network. And the if, if, if you overlay current prices and say, well, the miners need to be paid lots of money, then, then the transaction fees would be really, really ridiculously high, like thousands of dollars. So, but that's something that can balance out. I mean, we, we know from Ethereum that the gas fees go up and down. So basically, isn't that the same with Bitcoin? Um, as, as it's just, yeah. It is, but you're talking about the money going up in this case because there's, I mean, they're down. Actually, Bitcoin transaction fees are very low at the moment. But one of the biggest negatives, I think, is network fees for both Bitcoin and Ethereum mm. because it does look like there's not enough capacity in these networks. So then people then talk about layer two solutions. So, so you, you actually can have fewer transactions on the black blockchain, but you can have infinite number of transactions on, a, on another chain. You know, think of fund of funds rather than just a, a blockchain of blockchain sort of thing. And, and then they report back. So you take do lots and lots of transactions, millions of transactions, and you report back once to the main chain. So that's so like the Lightning Network, isn't it? Just, so, exactly. so just for people who really are not very technical and, and don't, understand any of this what what they're basically saying is that the main bitcoin blockchain is it might be slow and it would take a lot of it can only deal with a few transactions like relatively few so what you do is you do all these transactions off chain on a layer what's called a layer two do all the transactions sort of add everything up and then net it off and then put it back on onto the the main chain so what you're doing is effectively doing work outside and then putting it back in but isn't one of the one of the problems with um, that i could foresee and, and with doing that is that bitcoin is very secure because of the way it works so is ethereum and aren't layer two um solutions aren't they potentially less secure because of the way they work couldn't couldn't there be problems that are introduced in the layer two and then added to the blockchain that that then need to be fixed later on, which can't be. Yeah, well, you're not going to be. You're not going to have a problem with the, with the double spending problem or, or, or anything like that. You know, I, I think that it, there must be there must be less secure because they've got less proofs of work. But it's the reporting system that matters. The fact is that you create a hash for a transaction and report those hashes back in aggregate, and so you've you've still got the same audit trail which I think is the, the bit that's, the, that's, that's most important. Perhaps you wouldn't want to do um, a very, very large um, layer two transaction. You maybe, maybe wouldn't want to send someone a trillion dollars or a billion dollars, <laughs> but you might be happy to do lots and lots of smaller transactions, which I think is the point of them. 
Yeah, but that that's still but that's still an issue though, isn't it? I mean, I'm sorry to press the point, but it's um but that that's one of the things inherently um like for for example, you might say well, 2000 pounds not very much money, but perhaps to somebody who's not very wealthy, that might be all their their savings and if if that goes wrong, they're not going to be very happy. Um yeah. so 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 it's it's either kind of less secure or or it isn't. And from what you're saying, it is definitely less secure. Um, yeah, I would think I would think it probably is, but I, I have to say that I really don't know, Paul, because I didn't design it and mm. um, I, don't, I don't cover it in my research. The yeah. layer two solutions, I was bringing them up because they they offer the, the the solution to the problem I was mentioning earlier, which is running out of black blockchain capacity and they'd be able to scale this thing, right? But they're still not very big. There's not so there's lots of talk about them, but very little is happening on them. And in fact, access to information is quite difficult. And that's and we're very much in the business of of, of covering things properly, of downloading um, the you know the blockchain where we can find it, and um, and analysing it. And in the case of these layer twos, particularly the Stripe network, um, you you can't do that. You've got no access to anything. So the truth is, I don't really know. Mm, yeah, it's 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 interesting actually because I've asked a few people this question and and got a very similar answer. Like I'm not sure what I'm hoping to do in the future is get a few people together and um there are some people who claim to to know the answer to this so i have like a small um blockchain bitcoin uh conference where we all just like hash this out if you excuse the pun and um and see if we can get some answers to obviously you mentioned the term bitcoin mac maximalists earlier there are a lot of people who are are Bitcoin maximalists, and they think that this is the only way forward. And there's people who think completely the opposite. So there's experts in this field who have got diametrically opposed views, and it is difficult to work out whether they're right or not. Um, and we're seeing it in in the main media as well. And you mentioned uh, Taleb, so it might <laughs> might be interesting now to explain why you think Taleb is uh, is is not the person who we might think he is. Well, he came to visit me when, when I was in the hedge fund buying game in 2009 and um, I was flogging tail protection products. Tim, why don't you explain what tail protection products are? Uh, if you have a tail and you're worried about it, you, you can take out some protection against it. <laughs> like a dog or a you know, wallaby or something. <laughs> so basically, it's a tail risk. So when you have a financial crisis like 2008, um, you know, people say, how can I protect my portfolio against the whole world going to hell in a handbasket and you, so you buy what they call a left tail protection product because you have, the market has a left tail event, a right tail event being a melt up, which is what we're having at the moment. So a melt down would be left tail. And, um, and so he, he was selling these sort of complex products full of derivatives and volatility hedges and so forth on huge management fees. And he was selling them in 2009, not in 2008 which they would have been quite useful in 2008. But in 2009, they just went straight to zero. And there was very little transparency. And, and, and he was basically just doing a victory lap um, of his prediction and his book and so forth. And um, he wasn't very nice either. So he was trying to flog these products that were going to go to zero, um, collect a lot of fees in the process. And, and, and he wasn't even very charming. Mm, okay. Um, so you... So Ethereum is a, um, out of the two technologies, um, if we had to choose, would you choose Ethereum over Bitcoin? Is, it, is that a superior technology, as some people have said? 
it's apples and oranges. <clears throat> I don't think you could even compare them. So Ethereum <clears throat> allows you to do many more versatile things, but doesn't claim to be the store of value that Bitcoin does. So Bitcoin's coming at this on a monetary angle. <clears throat> Say I'm the king of value in the crypto space. I'm the most stable um, uh, place to be. I'm the gold of the system, if you like. Whereas Ethereum's coming along more like the oil and it's doing lots of hard work. I'll give you an example. So the biggest crypto by far is Bitcoin. Um, little less than half the size is, is, is Ethereum. And then we've got the stable coins. And the stable coins are probably the most interesting development in crypto in recent years because the banks have been very difficult to deal with. And if you try to transfer money um, to a crypto exchange, you'll get, you'll get blocked. You might get debanked, you know, all these sort of problems. And so crypto said, well, how can we solve this problem? Let's make our own cash. And so they literally took the US dollar and stuck it on the blockchain. And guess what? A dollar is a dollar. It doesn't go up or down. It's just a dollar. Uh, there's no trick here. So it's a money, money market fund, effectively, that trades on, on, on payment rails. And we can talk about Tether later. That that's confuses the issue. But basically, um, these things are, are working very well. And they've grown to over $140 billion. Now, these, these dollars are sitting on the blockchain. Well, they're sitting on a, typically sitting on Ethereum blockchain, but could be sitting on other ones as well, like Tron um, or, or Cardano or Solana. Increasingly, they will find their ways to play uh, their way around to different different protocols. Now, the reason that um, Ethereum is interesting is because the dollars can live here, and then when you send a hundred dollars, you pay a transaction fee. You basically put a stamp on the transaction of ETH rather than the Queen's head first class. You're you're putting some ETH uh, into the transaction, which pays for you to transact your US dollars from A to B. So this is how you can buy and sell Bitcoin, get cash without having to take your money out into the banking system and have all that sort of thing. So the ETH thing, you know, why does the price of ETH go up? It's because, well, if you want to use ETH to send, for example, dollars around or, you know, um, NFTs or what have you, you pay a fee in ETH. So that's, that's now a permanent source of demand for ETH because you've got to go and buy it in order to transact. Now, the other day, um, it was about $40. Uh, I don't know if it's today, I haven't looked, but it was about $40 to send a transaction. So if you're sending a single dollar, then you've got to pay $40. Yeah, yeah, the fees is, are ridiculous. So if you want to pay $100,000, if you want to send $100,000, $40 is suddenly looking quite cheap. But it doesn't differentiate because you're paying for data and doesn't really, the computer doesn't really care how much money you're sending. It just cares about the fact you're using its, its limited supply of data. Uh, in its transaction process. Now, if there was excess capacity, those fees would come down to, to a couple of cents. If there was a bottleneck, they'd, they'd jump up into the hundreds. And, uh, and that's how it works. So the big problem about that for me is that the current design of Ether is not scalable. So if this thing is going to take over the world and run our financial system, it just needs to be um, much bigger, much cheaper than it currently is. So yes, that design is very likely to be disrupted unless their upgrades are so good that they, they can increase capacity. And that's why people are favoring Solana. They think it could do this more efficiently. Now, Bitcoin's not making that claim. It's not saying, use me for all these fancy um, applications. Just, you know, I'm just a store of value here. Um, and so long as everyone believes that, then that will remain true. But what you're say, when you say Bitcoin is saying and, and, and Ethereum is saying, nobody's actually saying anything. It's just how people have used it, right? You're spot on, Paul. Absolutely spot on. So Bitcoin is a monetary network because Michael Saylor, Saylor said it was. Yeah. It has never been proved as a monetary network. And yeah, the price has gone up in 10 years, 
but we've never seen it. You know, we, we didn't we didn't put it in the 1970s and saying how did you do? Um, we haven't had that that chance to test it. But one suspects that it will, because all the evidence that if you look at Bitcoin's behaviour against uh, the bond market, basically it does. Bitcoin tends to perform when bond yields and inflation expectations are rising, and it tends to underperform when bond yields and inflation expectations are falling. Under the def- definition of value investing, um, Bitcoin and all these other technologies don't get a look in. Is that because um, they need it needs to be rewritten, Tim, or, or do you think that those principles will eventually be proven to be right? I mean, there are things Charlie will know a lot more. About, you both, both you guys will know a lot more about these topics than I do. Charlie, would you want to say a word about stable coins? Yeah, stable coins. I'm just talking about them. These are the dollars on the blockchain. So the the problem the problem I have as a value manager, value investor with crypto at the moment is I I don't know how to value it. There may be ratios that 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 make sense, and I'm not aware of them. And because the the apparent price volatility, when expressed in fiat, e.g., dollars, is is so wild that it it can't. It seems to me I'm not anti because as a libertarian I have to approve of all forms of sort of flowers blooming, specifically you know, currency flowers that aren't issued by government uh, in, in a monopolistic form. But it, 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 they're too volatile to be seen as, quote, stable assets. So if that doesn't sound a bit too bedwetty of me. Yeah, so Bitcoin, we're not, no one's saying Bitcoin's stable. Uh, the stable coins are just the dollars um, or the euros or the yen, which, of course, it doesn't matter what inflation is. All fiat currency is stable in the short term. It's just unstable in the long term. Sure. And um, I mean, hyperinflation is when it's hyperinflation is basically when it's not even stable in the short term, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so on the valuation thing, I was mentioning that 2015 was cheap because one of the things we do is measure the amount of money that changes hands on the blockchain. Now, last week that was 50 billion dollars. Now that would be using our calibrations and so forth a fair value for Bitcoin of about 30,000 dollars. Yeah. So the current price is 64,000 dollars. And our analysis puts it at fair value, $30,000. Now, there are two big drivers of price. And that's really been true. This, 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 um, this gap has opened up over the last few months, and I write about it every week and so forth. But um, there are two things that drive the price of Bitcoin. And one is very much um, who's, you know, buyers and sellers, the market thing. And the other is the fundamental, the intrinsic value. And those are split, as they are in all things. And right now in tech, you've got a lot of companies where you know, there's more demand for the share price than, than the product. And, um, and so share prices are ahead of events. Now, we see this in stock markets all the time. No big deal. It's quite normal. In investment trusts, you know, that's an area where we, we have a, you know, a, a definitive measure because you can see what the shares can be sold for today and what the share price is. And all we're trying to do is replicate that um, in Bitcoin. And the network has not grown anything like as much as I'd like it to this year. Now, last year it grew a lot. So 2020, 2020 was a great year for Bitcoin because it absolutely behaved as it should have done. It was too cheap. The March, March 2020 sell-off, it went from 10K to 5K. It was a screaming buy. It was very obvious on our metrics at the time. And then it was very obvious later on in the year it was, it was going up and it was going to be a bull market and a breakout and an all-time high. 2021 has been a mem year, a bubble year. Um, and it, you know, price price does respond to some of the things you want it to, but it doesn't to a lot of other things. It cares more about Elon Musk on Twitter than it does about fundamentals, blockchain size, network size, macro, and so forth. Um, and, and so that, that's just the you know the normal um, 
uh, shenanigans in financial markets when 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 prices can can dislodge themselves from from the truth. But then the other side to it is just straightforward flows. Now, I was mentioning earlier there are seven hundred thousand bitcoins coming to market over the next two and a half years, and who the hell is going to buy them? And so one of the things we measure is in, in is the flows into the Bitcoin ETFs and Ethereum ETFs and gold and silver. By the way, we haven't touched my favourite subjects yet. Um, and if if the there are 900 bitcoins coming to market every day, and if there's a buyer, if there's a visible buyer through the through the ETF world, then yeehaw, job done. That that bitcoin is being bought. If if all the ETF flows dry up, then then who the hell's going to put that 50 billion dollars in over the next three years? That's why the market responds so incredibly powerfully to the launch of an ETF in the US, um, and why the recent futures fund um, Bito, which raised 1.2 billion dollars in a couple of days. Um, was a big deal. I mean, partly it, it, it scooped up a month's Bitcoin supply, even though it's futures because there's a hedge of somewhere, um, which is very positive. But the thought of more ETFs coming means more Bitcoin demand, which is very supportive for price. So I think those are the two dynamics, the fundamentals of the blockchain, which are its size, um, and, and then the supply and demand as measured by flow, which is the, the institutional buyer versus the miner who's selling. So you mentioned your your favourite topic there. Um, what, sorry, what what was that? I, I I said we measure flows with Bitcoin, Ethereum, gold, and silver. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. So out, outside of the um, so outside of Bitcoin, obviously there there are other um, assets. And when you're doing your analysis, um, are you looking at inflation rates? Are you looking at uh, bond yields as well, or is it um, is it just solely based on what data you're getting from the the blockchain network for, for bitcoin yeah like when you when you value it so for example you're saying that it's at the moment it seems it's we're getting the impression that it seems a bit overvalued and it should come down based upon the network fees but that would only make sense if you haven't got rampant inflation and um the outside uh, elements that, that 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 could affect it are are behaving in the same way that they were when it was at 5,000. So things could have changed that mean that whilst it's it's slowing down internally, externally, things are changing. It's all possible. So um, I have a thing called Atomic. How I analyze Bitcoin is called Atomic, which is analysis of the technicals, which, you know, why wouldn't you look at the price chart? Um, the macro, the on-chain, and the investment flows. And so those are the four, the four headings that I look at. And the flows right now are quite supportive. Um, the the chain is 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 you know we're we're, head, we're way ahead on on the a calibration that's worked for ten years and so basically the, the price of Bitcoin relative to its network is currently at an all time high yeah so people are prepared, prepared today to pay more for Bitcoin today than they were in in previous years um, the macro is is somewhat supportive the bond yield coming down um, which has been something that we've had a little bit of recently has has been a, a minor negative. But the inflation expectations going up has been a big positive. And then the final one is the US dollar that's been going up, which has been a slight negative. So I think the perfect storm would be a dollar down, um, inflation up, and the bond yield going up slowly. It, now, I mean, you, mentioned, you mentioned inflation and you, you touch on yields, but the, what, what strikes me to be the case is that the it's becoming increasingly clear for those of us that have no dog in the fight of the bond market that the central banks, the Fed, the Bank of England, soon to be the ECB, they have all lost control of the plot. They've lost control of the bond market. They're, 
They can't move on rates. They can't cut rates anymore to stimulate. They can't raise rates because that will crash the market and property prices. They are effed, basically. They're, they've boxed themselves into a corner. And I think the bond market's starting to, to pr- finally to price that in. Do you, do you, would you have a view on yields? Yeah, I, I think the whole thing's a bit of a scam. And it's a bit, it's a real shame, actually, because, you know, I totally agree with you on all this, Tim, about the price of money. No one knows what it should be, just more expensive than it currently is. I'm actually a fan of the fiat system. I actually think it's a really good design. It's just has been abused time again by policymakers. Because if you think what what we had before, you know, pre-1970, we had this um, incredible fintech called gold. And the great thing about an ounce of gold is it was still an ounce of gold, whether it was in China or whether it was in um, Amsterdam or, or, or in um, Australia, you know. And so you had this reference point. It didn't need modern communications. Mm. And that, uh, quite apart from all the arguments we know about Nixon and so forth, there was the, the, the growth in computing and telecommunication around that era, 60s and 70s. And so actually you could have a feared system, which you couldn't have had much earlier. Because, you know, having a telegraph cable going across the Atlantic um, isn't 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 quite what you need to um, to have a global monetary system. So, the improvement in computing enabled the spread of fiat. And I think that's probably a point that probably deserves a bit more um, merit than than it currently gets. But if you if you didn't abuse your fiat currency and had the had interest rates at the right place, and they were say say like the Swiss have typically done throughout most of their like history. Like the Swiss, yeah, but I've got a, I've got a lot of time for the Swiss in so many ways, and. Um, you know, so you'd have very high real interest rate of four or five percent when you wanted to slow things down, and and you know one or zero when you wanted to to speed things up a bit. But you would never be in deep negative territory for sustained periods of time. Do you do you share my view that as the central banks attempt, probably as they inevitably will, to suppress further yield rises, further yield curve movements that. The, the, what would otherwise be a bond market vigilante will become a currency vigilante and the currencies will start probably di- dissolving from the periphery in. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So, until until they lose control of the yield curve. Yeah. And, and in which case, you know, it will be the bond market that's got the problem. It's remarkable. We've seen a bit of that in Australia recently, haven't we, where they've lost control of the two-year. Yeah, it seems like Australia was the first, it was the first sort of canary in the coal mine. But we haven't had a, uh, the only the only proper... Um, currency pulls up so far as Turkey and um, it's remarkable it's alone you're starting to see a bit of breakdown um, in Latin, Latin American countries you know Brazil Mexico that sort of thing but, but basically currencies have behaved very very well these last couple of years yeah mm. And what do you think uh, as these Latin American countries are looking increasingly at things like Bitcoin um, as as we go forward are uh, what what will a a world where when presumably when you talk to your family um, as I talk to mine they don't mention this stuff they don't mention they they hear about cryptocurrencies but it's like one of those things um, that's a bit like the internet in the late you know nineties or, or or you know dot com companies in the late nineties they've sort of heard something about it but they're not they're not really transacting in it they don't really know what it is um, they think it might. It might be something, but they don't know what that is. Obviously, that's going to change at some point. And well, I say obviously, it may not. Um, but when it's generally accepted, when it's working within the the wider community and everybody knows what it is and, and is using it, what do you think that will look like? Will we have like uh, Bitcoin credit cards? Um, 
or we actually buy our cups of coffee with with some form of cryptocurrency? Or do you think the governments are going to get in there first with their digital um, digital currencies and, and make us spend that instead? Wow, that's a, that's a lot of questions. I mean, <laughs> the, the MasterCard thing, so, so there's been a lot of news all around that. And indeed, um, even Thailand, that was pretty pretty sniff, sniffy about Bitcoin just a few months ago, actually saying that if anyone put research out in Thai bar, they'd come and, get, come and go for them. So in Thai Bart, in in, in in Thai language, um, if if you know, so if, if Bytree had written in Thai, then that would have made us an enemy of the state. Wow. And, uh, and that was only a few months ago. So the fact that now they're enabling Mastercards to to engage Bitcoin is is just shows you the sort of progress we're seeing. Well, I didn't uh, know that was going on. Sorry, that's that's news to me. So Mastercard are you going to be using Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, there's been announcements left, right, and center of Mastercard. Mastercard and Visa are scrambling over each other right now. So Visa, I think, bid $3 million for an NFT, which they've been using in their promotion, and I think they print it on some cards and stuff. And, um, and so Mastercard and Visa both want to, to, to engage with, with Bitcoin payments. And, and the idea is it's just like having one of these gold Mastercards where you've just got a pile of Bitcoin or a pile of gold and then you go spending and it's debited from your portfolio. I just see it as fintech. It's not really it's not really the Bitcoin revolution. It's just fintech around some of these things. It could be on your portfolio. You could have a portfolio with Tim Price, you know, full of, full of all these wonderful um, CTAs that he loves and just, you know, buy a cup of coffee and shave a bit of CTA off. I mean, it's all the same thing, isn't it? It's just fintech. On the topic of, of fintech versus conventional finance, traditional finance, did do the convention do the traditional banks have any future? I, I, I personally don't see how they they possibly can, but I'm I'm willing to be persuaded well, otherwise. Well, Paul second bit. I mean, he threw in the C the C CBDC question in next yeah. <laughs> to Mastercard. It's like okay, well that's a big stuff. That's an entire podcast. That's um, sure. I call them CBBs. <laughs> <laughs> I have a three-year-old, and I have to watch see the children's BBC. Um, so, but I think they they entirely missed the point. Now, I've just written letter, a letter to a senior political figure of the United Kingdom on this very subject, and so I'm very, it's a very timely question to ask. And I think anyone who's you know, the, the quote comes from from I'll try and get it right. It's the quote came from Jerome Powell a few months ago. And he he front front runner insider dealer Jerome Powell. Yes. So he's the Federal Reserve, Reserve Chief. And he said, I quote, you wouldn't need stable coins. You wouldn't need cryptocurrencies if you had a digital U.S. currency. OK, so he's completely and utterly wrong. And the idea that the only reason, you know, it's, it's looking at the fintech side of the whole thing. Oh, we just want to use Bitcoin payment rails. I mean, if you had if you if you didn't have. Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the other stuff, you wouldn't need digital cash. What do I mean by digital cash? Digital cash is a £10 note, which you know, when I have a £10 note, um, it says Bank of England on it. When I have £10 on my Barclays Bank app, it's got a Barclays Bank written on it. Which one's a better version of £10? It's the cash, right? Because yeah. the Bank of England is more solvent than, well, haha, Tim, don't start, um, than, than, um, than Barclays. Because at least they can issue the thing, which Barclays can't in quite the same way. Well, if you've got the £10 in your hand, you, you can spend it. But, you know, the internet could go down. You might not be able to get to it. They could go bankrupt. So £10 well, in your hand is always better. It's the credit risk I'm referring to. Yeah. So £10, you know, £10 in your hand can't default other than by hyperinflation. Um, so yeah. but, but the £10 in your Barclays bank account, is, is subject to Barclays, um, you know, 
Credit um, risk, yeah. Credit risk. And and so, you know, on the face of it, a central bank digital currency would give you an electronic digital bearer certificate of £10 backed by the Bank of England. So that really is a superior electronic £10 to a £10 on an on a, on a, on a app. Um, so that's the first thing. So that's, that's the good bit. But the rest of it's the bad bit. You know, you've got all the... The idea is that, that the government could enforce negative rates, which is basically just theft. Or turn off your cash altogether. Or turn it off, or censor you. Or, or stop you buying certain things. Yes, or the data side of it. Um, you know, all of these these sorts of things. Then you've got the real issue, which is the, the Bank of England is now in the tech business. Now, how many successful government-led tech businesses or tech enterprises or, or things have there been? Well, they well, want to be I, in the I, climate I, change I, business, don't they? I miss CFAX, but I'm not sure the government was responsible for that. <laughs> but, um, the point is, you'd rather the private sector did it. So there's two visions for this. Vision one is, you know, hello, Facebook, MasterCard, um, Visa, Barclays Bank, you name it. Have a go at electronic money. Why don't you? Let's make a level playing field, set up some rules, let's go. Uh, and the world's fiat currencies go digital on crypto payment rails. Fantastic. And um, the other one is, is central bank digital currencies, which no one wants to use or care about. And uh, it's a very good idea for China, very, very bad idea for Britain, basically. And the only reason you're going to want these things is because the whole financial system is going down this route. And so that is that in the future, we, we trade shares and bonds that sit on blockchains, effectively. So you can trade instant settlement, high security, held everything digitally. Think how much simpler it is to pay dividends or do corporate actions using blockchain type technology. Imagine being the company secretary of Tesla, where the shares are flying around each day, every day. They've got no, no idea who owns Tesla. It's just all moving so quickly. But in blockchain, you'd know exactly what was going on at any one time. And if you wanted to do, do a corporate action, very, very simple. If you wanted to, let's say you wanted to increase shareholder democracy. And so you could own an S&P 500 uh, index fund. And um, imagine if you did that on a blockchain, then actually all the votes could be passed down to the individual owners in the right proportion and people could engage if they wanted to. And that's the sort of thing that with the ESG thing, that's really an irreversible um, um, thing that's, you know, it's, it's not going away, right? It's only going to get worse. The, these sort of issues will become more and more important. So I think that the, the, the crypto payment rails enable everything. And really, Bitcoin is just the forerunner. Even if Bitcoin, you know, is, is sort of consigned to history, at some, confined to history at some point, I can see all of this stuff surviving. The, the, the technology and the exchanges, the way we've recreated a, 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 an alternative financial system, you know, has been a huge success. Um, and I think it sticks. So why do you need digital money if you're not going to embrace the rest of it? So my real argument is that um, stable coins, uh, whether they're private or public, uh, um, government-led, um, serve absolutely no purpose if you're not going to embrace the crypto revolution at the same time. Yeah, and and um, so what what do you think will happen? And, sorry, Paul, just, just to, to finish that point. Oh, sorry, I thought you'd finish. Sorry. No, no, I had finished, but then I just just want to make one more example. So imagine we ban crypto, not that we can, but just hypothetically, we ban crypto, uh, but we but we have a digital pound, Bitcoin. I think they're going to call it Bitcoin, led led by the Bank of England. And what do you do with it? So if so if, if if there's no crypto, you've got this digital pound. Well, what's the point? Yeah, I'm I'm just just trying to think. Um, I think the most important element of a central bank currency is the
that you have to pay your taxes in it. And we talked about that at the top of the show because if obviously if you make any money on your your well, say any assets, whatever you buy, uh, if you make a, a profit, you have to declare it and then you have to pay tax on it. So that applies to whatever currency or cryptocurrency you're buying. It could it could just be trading cards that you buy. If you make a profit, you have to pay tax on it. So in, in many ways, all roads lead back to the central bank's currency, whatever they determine that being. At the moment, obviously, it's sterling, and it could be a central bank digital currency, digital version of it. But you are forced to use it. That That's it. That's kind of like, I think that's perhaps why they are less worried about cryptocurrencies now, because they realize that all roads lead back to their, their um, issued currency. But the actual um, kind of technology behind it and what they what else they might be able to do with it is 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 worrying of course from a point of view of of um uh, of privacy uh but i i they could obviously exist mutually they're not mutually exclusive either they could all exist together and you just have a choice but i think they would but like you said if 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 thailand can make it so that if you write research in their in their language, you you become a target. There are laws that they can pass to make sure that you don't trade in it. So it, it's it is a difficult one. It, it it would push it out to another jurisdiction. But if it were illegal to 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 trade in Bitcoin, you, you would I think most people would stop or you know because the risk it would be too. I say most people. I don't know whether they would or not. But it it would be a big blow to it. It would definitely be, a lot of people would stop enough people to um, to take the steam out of it and. Yeah, I to use the word force. Sorry, I, I mean I've been, you know, living under the illusion that we're a free nation for many years, and um, I, I, I probably don't assume that they would force us to use a C, CN, uh, CBDs in this country, but, but maybe they will. Yeah, I mean it's it's not even a question of um, forcing. I, I think they would, if they make the technology available, and let's say they make it so that whoever signs up gets X amount in their account free and then you know there's loads of ways they could do it well they're not they're not forcing people to get to take experimental gene therapies but they're not just making it impossible to live and do anything without them yeah there's increasing pressure on people in that regard and and um so yeah i mean that you, you you're right it could be that you can't pay for things other than through this this form um so how they bring it in they obviously were slow to on the uptake of 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 what the technology could do because most of the the comments against it was if you notice they were just saying oh no it's it's um you know either it's they thought so thought of it as a fad or they said oh it's just used for illegal activity you know forgetting that that's exactly what you know cash is used for as well so how you could criticize it for that and then suddenly it's like oh actually we like this stuff so let, let's create our own which was all pretty obvious that they would they would get to that point um because it must the amount of control that they would have with it is massive and actually physically issuing coins and notes costs a lot of money and in some ways if they were if it was to be used in a benign way it would be a it would be a step forward it would be a good thing because you wouldn't be able to counterfeit notes which is a problem they have to change it and whether we like it or not there are bad actors out there who are who are forging money and that's causing inflation as well because it's it's adding to the supply that shouldn't be there um and 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 so 
there are positives with having it as well. I mean, it's not all negative, but the problem is, can you trust the government not to, you know, use that control that, that they would then have? Um, and that's a big question. I think the message, the message of the last two years is that you don't allow government an ounce more power than, than it deserves. And if you give them an inch, they will take a mile, which is why I happen to think this government's on borrowed time now. Yeah, well, then then their actions are self-defeating, aren't they? Because then they would get voted out and they have to realise they can't do that. Um, but that's presuming that there's somebody else to vote for who has a different mm. view. Um, but, um, yeah. Do you, do you have a view on the political scene, uh, Charlie? Well, let's come back. Yeah, of course. But, Paul, I'll come back to that bit. You know, for me, it's should the private sector be driving digital money or should the public sector be doing it? Yes. And to my mind, you know, I, I would like to see hundreds of, um, of, of, of different, um, well, I don't know how many currencies are in the world, let's call it 140, it's about that. And, and all of them to be digitized in a hundred different ways. And for all of those different things to be inter, interoperable, I could see a case for the Bank of England issuing guarantees so they don't have to depend on on a, on a commercial bank in the middle or a you know um, dodgy ever ever evergrand paper sitting inside the um, the money market fund that represents the currency. So there would be you know government guarantees might be nice from time to time as currently retail depositors have um, and and such like. But, but so they could play a role. But also you know I think the risk is that if if there was an outage of any kind, you've got central bank credibility on the line. So they would they would just be. It would be horrendous if you had some sort of technical um, um, problem with the system and the central bank was trying to solve it. Whereas if it was a private situation, then the central bank could actually be very helpful in, in, in greasing the wheels of the system. So there's, you know, does it need to be public? Could it be private? That's really my number one argument here. And I fall down very firmly on the side that it's private. What, what, so you're looking for politics. So sorry, say again. Did you want to talk politics? Yeah, why not? I mean, uh, let's have something that, that's not at all divisive or a wedge issue. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I was really sort of quite excited at the last election, thinking that, that um, um, politics would sort of calm down a bit. But actually, it's just got worse again. Little, little, little did we know what was ahead. Yeah, and and I thought Boris would be fun. But, you know, he hasn't been. And, you know, Brexit's been fine. It's been, frankly, a bit of a non-event, hasn't it? I know everyone tries to find... Um, these huge problems, and I know the Northern Irish shells probably could, would be better off and that sort of thing, so it hasn't worked out perfectly for everyone, but it hasn't been um, some sort of disaster either, it's just, this has been pretty neutral, as, as, you know, as was kind of obvious, because these things generally are. And, um, but I, the disappointment is just how we're just more in debt and writing checks and putting taxes up, and I just find it extraordinary. And, and uh, I don't really know who out, who who out there represents a standard conservative, a compassionate conservative view. And I consider myself um, pretty right winged on the economics and 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 pretty centre on the social side. Yeah, um, the way the way I describe the current situation, the current predicament is that the Conservative Party has completely lost touch with its source code. Yeah, I like that. And I'm not not even sure I dignify this current. Government with the word government, I'd call it a regime or an administration, which, I, as I say, I, I happen to think is on borrowed time. But that may be as much wishful thinking as anything else. Right, Tim, you and I, we can change the world. Should we do it? Oh uh, yeah, why not? Um, I, I'm washing my hair in a little while. Do we do it after that? Yeah, but this is what we need to do. We need to um, literally take the Swiss political system 
and and we we to we to win one election in Britain, and then literally fire everyone and just drop in the political the Swiss political system and then just go back on holiday. <laughs> what, what, what about um, what about the Reclaim Party and, and Lawrence Fox? Do you have any time for for that? Uh, don't know. I haven't spent much time looking at it. I I would absolutely agree that the future has to be local, has to be localized, bottom up, grassroots type yeah, stuff. My favourite hobby, whenever I meet anyone Swiss, it's my favourite joke. I say, what's the name of your Prime Minister? Do you know what they say? I don't know. I don't know. Wow. Every time. Unless they work in government or something, they just haven't a clue. The country is neutral, which I find fascinating, and it's been a very successful strategy. And um, they've got this sort of small top tax, and there's a sort of state, there's a canton tax, there's a sort of village tax. And you know, if you want, if you want to pay less tax, you move to that canton. If you want to pay more, you move to that canton. So it's a bit, it's a bit like the states' flexibility on tax in in the US. That if well, you US um, probably a bit more, bit more ruthless. It's a bit more yeah. driven by competition. Whereas in Switzerland, there's less emphasis on competition, but they do have a leveling up. So the wealthier cantons automatically pay the the less wealthy cantons, mm. and so that's why you get good railways and public services everywhere. And um, you know, and, th- and there's a real obligation to, to not serve the country, but not be a not be a um, um, not 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 to drain on the state. Sure. And so people sort of don't culturally, and that's fascinating. And so they have this sort of very well run country with with pretty low taxes and the best version of fiat that the world's ever seen. So how do we make it happen? How do we how do we replace? How do we clean your June stables, Charlie? The first thing, I mean, and finally, I'm with with the Liberal Democrats. It's taken me a while to get here, but I'm I I I, I know, yeah. I don't want to see Perth first past the post ever again. I don't want to see a strong Labour government. I don't want to see a strong Tory government ever again. Because um, I, I I used to be sceptical about PR on the basis that it's what they use in places like Italy, and Italy never has a Italy has like new government every uh, every day of the week. But now now I'm beginning maybe coming around to your view, which is if you if you if you make it impossible for government to do anything, maybe that's the right the right solution. But it works it in Germany. So you, so you have proportional representation number one, and the second there's a second important thing here, and that's you've got to be able to turn the volume of politics down. So I get rid of Westminster, I turn it into a museum. And I put them in somewhere like Sheffield or Liverpool or somewhere where, because that's how we do leveling up. That's, I'm not joking there. I'm, I'm being mm-hmm. serious. So that's where the, you know, a, a good capital like um, Bonn in Germany before the, the reunification or, or Bern in Switzerland or Canberra in Australia. You know, they build a place where I go away, get out of a nice mega city where you can have your fabulous life um, and go somewhere quiet. And mm-hmm. um, no journalist wants to go and live there. So guess what? Quieter politics. Boris is not on the front page of the newspaper every day, and um, he just gets on with the job, which is emptying the bin and keeping the nation safe. So um, now you've solved that problem, um, can I can I ask a question about um, you know the, the the more private cryptocurrencies? Given that you, you know you've obviously done a lot of research, what, what Bitcoin? What, sorry. No, I just made a joke, uh, which 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 flopped like like so many of my jokes do. So I, I, I just wrong. I just didn't hear what you said. <laughs> I just said titcoin. Well, oh, you said t- private, pr- private. Oh, anyway, I see. Okay, let's 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 move on swiftly before I it, we're in holes. Stop digging. So the the coins like Monero and Dero, do you think they are uh, w- will will be increasingly used uh, because of their privacy? Because people think Bitcoin is private. It's not. If you can work out 
uh, somebody's wallet address, then you can work out all the transactions they've done. And one of the problems with that is that obviously if something is is illegal or stolen um, under, say, UK law, I'm sure it's similar in other places, your title does not um, the title of ownership does not transfer. So, you know, if if you've got a, a stolen car and you sell it to somebody, that does not transfer the title. So technically, if some Bitcoin has been used in illegal activity and is stolen and then used again, then that title won't transfer. So how do how do we deal with that problem? And does that not make it so that the other very private coins... Um, well, in some ways, they're just covering up that problem rather than solving it. But when you don't know anything about the transactions, everything is private and dark. Um, does is that a superior thing? Do you think, in your opinion? Not really. I mean, I think it. I think what's superior is what takes off. So you can design features. If privacy is more important to you um, than great. Uh, put those features in. You know, put any features you like in. If the crowd buys it, then then it works. So if, if, if 10 people want to use a, pri- a really private coin, well, so what? It's not going to be that useful. But if a billion people are prepared to give up a little bit of privacy to have a, a better network, then then that's going to work. So you've got, you know, what's going to work? It, it's all about what adopts. And there are hundreds of these things, thousands of these things. And Tim, um, there is indeed a, a token. I just found it. And I'm not sure how many coins are an issue because it doesn't say, but it is called TITS. The TITS. Yay. And um, uh, the, the one I was always intrigued Shatcoin. by was the prospect of Shatcoin, William Shatner's Shatcoin, but I'm not sure it ever actually launched or not. There's actually a, there's actually a titstoken.net. Um, <laughs> I just clicked on it, and um, my, web, my, my, my web defender says, do not click on this site. <laughs> As if you need to be told. Yeah. Um, um, wh- where, where do you search for these these coins? What? Um, oh, well, that was CoinGecko I went on. Oh, yeah. right, right, right. Okay, yeah. So do do you um do you keep an eye on the new technologies? Have you got sort of one eye on what's bubbling up in the background or, or are you just so focused on the majors that, that you don't have time to do that? Well personally I focus on the majors, but the team, you know, we've got some analysts and um we've just we've just got our third analyst now and they write about these things. Brilliant. And, and we we're just building a we're we're just about to release a trend following system which which will give you uh, both alpha and beta trades trends so that's in dollar terms and um, and also in bitcoin terms so obviously bitcoin to bitcoin is one you know but, but anything else relative to bitcoin and, and so we're just looking for alpha trends and and, and trawling through thousands so that'll be available soon so is uh, that yeah. an actual fund or is that just research 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 okay interesting. We have a fund, and, and the idea the long-term idea is because, because we I mean, I can't, we have a hedge fund i don't run it but um I, i'm not allowed to say much about it for regulatory reasons uh, but it, but there is one, and 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 the aim is to 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 um, offer a very credible um, um, exposure to this market. I suppose I'll say no more for legal reasons because I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to say or not. How how do you go short Bitcoin if you think at the moment it's it's too high and we'll go back to thirty thousand? I'm not saying you're saying that, and I'm not saying that anybody should trade it in that way. Um, but if if one wanted to sh- to short it. How would they do it? I mean, you can you can trade um, you can trade Bitcoin futures on you know on a market index like uh, IG, can't you? Uh, yeah, well, IG is sort of part closed. You've got to you've got to say you're a professional to get access. Mm. FCA banned it, but uh, you can get get proper futures on the on the CME. You can get loads of different futures contracts on some of the um, you know Bitfinex and those sorts of exchanges. 
Um, I think there's a short ETP in Switzerland. Um, so there are different ways of doing it. But, you know, I reiterate, when I say that Bitcoin is trade, trading at twice as negative value, well, the whole stock market is too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it'll probably double just because... That is just, not a high conviction short-term view that Bitcoin is going to No, 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 no. I didn't think you were saying that at all. I, I just wondered... Um, with real money, how you how you would do it, you know, uh, leveraged. There are lots of ways, um, and other other than other than sort of, you know, not not actually trading it and just staying out or taking your profits or moving into another coin. How does one express a view that it's too expensive? Um, I, well, I think you just raise a bit of cash. Yeah. Um, switch to gold or something. But the, Notably, the, which are moving at the moment. Gold and silver seems to have finally woken up. Why you, shouldn't, why you should be very careful about shorting Bitcoin. And that's because its volatility is, is over 60%. Yeah. And you know, if anyone doesn't know what that means, that's really high. Gold is 15. And um, it basically means an average day over the last year or so has, has been about 5%. Now, it doesn't do 5% every day. But there's been some very, very big days. And so the expectation is that the price of Bitcoin in a year from now is going to be at least plus or minus 60% of what it currently is, plus or minus. So that's just, and that's what, that's, you know, how you read volatility. It's basically showing you this, this asset is, is, is um, um, unstable. And if you think about volatility in terms of where interest rates are as well, I think that that kind of highlights quite how volatile it is. I mean, if interest rates were at ten percent, that wouldn't be so bad. But if interest rates are basically where they are now, it is massively volatile. That's absolutely right, Paul. And the other thing about that is the move index. You know, the interest rate volatility index um, is actually starting to perk up. The the, the equity one, the VIX, isn't, but mm. the bond is, which I think will perk Tim um, perk Tim's ears. I, I guess it will, at some point in the future, it, with there will be a, a way to potentially value these 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 assets, so that that maybe a value investor can say, "Look, this has good value or bad value, or, or, or you know, I want to buy it, or, or now it's time to get out." Um, it's just is it just because we're at such an early stage still, um, and in figuring out what all this stuff is that. Um, you know, these, these questions are so hard to answer right now. I mean, I know you're answering them um, with your technology and your, your insight, but, um, but that's, that's very much niche, and this is not something that is, is um, generally accepted. Yeah, I mean, it works. I mean, the, the aim was to try um, and build a, a P ratio. So basically, mm. there, there was a, um, a P ratio called the NVT, the Network Value uh, Network Transaction Value. But basically, that was that came up. Someone came up with that in two, 2017. I did. I came up with exactly the same thing in 2014. I used to call it the Network Spend Ratio, which is basically the market cap um, comparing to the to the, um, the the dollar transaction value. And it was always done over rolling weeks. And the reason for that is because blockchain traffic automatically drops 30% at weekends. And so you need to have rolling seven-day periods to be able to get um, to, to get rid of that weekend bias. And um, you know it works, but you know the, people don't like the answer that it gives. That tells you that Bitcoin's a bit lofty at the moment, and you know, the current traffic is more 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 in tune with 30k than 60k. It is it is fascinating that this network operates 24 hours, hours a day, seven days a week, and. It's it's like in the old days, which we go back a long time. You know, shops used to close on a 
Thursday, I think it was, for a half day. And it was, uh, you know, obviously close, shops still close on a, on a Sunday uh, for li- religious reasons. But, you know, you, you, if you want to make a transaction uh, or you want to do some banking, you can't get to the bank because it's, you know, five days a week or some Saturdays. Um, but this is open all the time. You can trade shares all weekend if you wanted. Um, I know there are various markets that try to, to create that in a grey market, but they're not, it's not the actual market. But that's what that this is what this offers. Yeah, Tesla was. I think you could trade Tesla somewhere in crypto. I'm, I'm I'm not sure where you can trade it, but I was told about this. And last weekend, when they had the Musk vote about should he sell stocks, you know that was your that was your grey market happening over the weekend, courtesy of crypto prices. And it was correct. I think it was down eight percent or something. Mm. And and they picked up the price that it opened up on Monday. Very very um, potentially freighted, loaded or freighted question, Charlie. How much how much of someone's Investable portfolio should crypto represent, do you think? Or what should the range for that figure be? Well, I think if you're young and haven't got any money, probably 100%. But if you're, um, if you're um, a grown-up and you've got lots of money, probably somewhere between two and five. Okay, cool. Thank you. I mean, you know, it, it should be there. And um, is, is that predicated on, I mean, perhaps see where I'm coming from, is that predicated on, in the, in the worst case outcome, it goes to zero, or in the best case outcome, it goes up by 10x or some other massive multiple. Yeah. Or a, com- or a combination of the two. Where would you want to be in 1972? Yeah. What would your allocation to, to silver be? I mean, I think that sure. Bitcoin would be more disrupted to silver than to gold. We haven't mentioned precious metals, despite my gentle hints. Um, so I just go, I'll bring it up if you don't mind. By all means. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> the Bitcoin's taken taken gold's lunch. It hasn't. Gold's a proper grown-up asset. It's the greatest asset in the world, hard asset in the world. And um, and Bitcoin hasn't hasn't dented we, it. We should get you on more, Charlie. I think. I think. Yeah. Now silver, silver is dodgy gold, right? I mean, we we like silver. It's for good fun, but it's dodgy gold. And um, if is you it, look, why is it do, is it dodgy? Because it also has so many more industrial uses, which make it more of a cyclical commodity. Yes, yeah, so you've got less held less held by investors. Um, and so basically, so this is it. This is existing. It. Um, I, I did a, probably the finest presentation I ever gave was was to Reuters in 2012, I think. Yeah, it was and probably I, wasted on those guys. Yeah, and uh, no one picked up on this incredible point that I made. I spent ages coming up the data, which I've subsequently lost the information. Well, your incredible point can can be renewed. It can rise like a phoenix from the ashes on the state well, of the podcast, Charlie. So what I did was I calculated the the average inventory of each commodity each major commodity. And by that I meant, um, uh, you know, how many years supply did, did we have for, for gold in terms of how much was, was demand each year and then how many years was that to the stockpile. And for gold it was loads of years. It was you know, dozens and dozens of years, maybe it was 80 or something. And then for silver it came right down uh, to a lower number um, and uh, for oil it was sort of 13 days, for gas it was about 14 days, you know. And, and basically, it was pretty obvious that anything you consume, you have less of, and anything you don't consume, you have a greater stockpile. But then the column that went next to it was was price volatility, and guess what? Inverse correlation. So gold, very low volatility, huge above ground supply, um, uh, natural gas, the most volatile commodity, um, the lowest supply. And so I think that that's really quite important. So when you have industrial use, that's actually put cyclicality into your demand and therefore the price volatility increases. So not having industrial use is, is more useful. 
in the case of the monetary asset, if you want price stability. And so gold is, is better. Gold has uh, two value buyers, right? Which, which Bitcoin doesn't, and that's why Bitcoin's so volatile. And silver's more volatile too. Um, and the two value buyers are um, jewelers and central banks. But neither in a hurry. You know, the jewelers can stock up when the price is right. And the central banks can do the same thing. I think the central banks basically believe in a valuation framework for gold, which is probably quite similar to the one that I created many years ago. And um, they, they, you know, whenever it goes down, no one's interested, they buy. And they've been much bigger buyers in recent years than retail. Um, I know from 2018 to last summer, we had good retail buying of, um, of gold, but it's tailed off since then. Um, and some of that energy went to Bitcoin. But really, it's silver. Silver really has not seen retail flows. If you said to me, oh, the, if you said to me a year and a half ago, oh, but, you know, the, 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 during COVID, when the S&P was, the screen was red, oh, we're going to come out of this, is it going to be, you know, CPI at 5% and all this sort of thing. And 6%. 6% and a shortage of people and no lorry drivers and all this stuff. $20,000 freight rates. And um, I'd say, crikey, silver must look good in that environment. And where's it been? So if you go back to 2010-11, when all the crazy people who love silver were making all these arguments about hyperinflation and the end of the dollar and all this stuff and printing and debt GDP, exactly the same arguments um, you're hearing about Bitcoin crypto today, as if the crypto space think they invented these arguments. Mm. You know, I heard them, I've heard them every decade from different groups, um, the, the loudest of all being silver back in 2010-11, you know? I mean, Tim, you and I love all this, these conversations and always have done and always will do. But it's, it's who's, who's shouting the most loudly. I'm, in, I'm intrigued that you, you refer to the central banks as, let's say, sort of ongoing buyers. They're, they're somewhat price insensitive, aren't they? Because I mean, extremists, they can basically print their own money. So that's like marking their own homework. Well, the, the, the central banks that you don't like are not buying gold. The central banks that are buying gold lie in the emerging world. Uh, the people like Russia, aren't they? Russia and probably Russia, China. Yeah. I mean, the World Gold Council is a really good website for this. Gold.org. Um, I, I would look up the list, but I'll be clicking for a while. So, but, but, but basically, it's you know, it's it's Turkey's been buying. Do you have? I mean, this is anathema to what we do because we we don't kind of trade and we we don't think exclusively in sort of macro terms. It tends to be bottom up. But in in as much as these things impact on your process do you have a target as a near-term or medium-term target for the gold price as expressed in in dollars us dollars well I, i'm on record i wrote an article for the world gold council or was it the lbma one or the other um at the end of 18 2018 i think and i said 17 7,000 by 2030 and that's and that's sans covid that's before covid yeah before covid so 7,000 2030 based on long-term real interest rates going to um um, minus 4%, was it? No, no. No, it was on inflation expectations, 20-year expectations, so long-term expectations going to 4%. So currently we've got historic, you know, you mentioned 6%, but you've got these big numbers of, of, of a supply chain disruption period, mm. um, not, not, not as transitory as the authorities would like to have you believe sort of thing, but, but there's an element of that, uh, and there are also structural elements. But the long-term expectation is still closer to two. So if you can get that number up to four, then gold, gold basically goes bananas. So if, if people believe that inflation is, is not just happening now, but going to stay, 
which come through bond market pricing. Basically, that means people are prepared to pay much more for tips than they are for conventional bonds um, than, than Gold Coast bananas. So do you think it will also go bananas because the central banks, the main central bank, will actually be very slow in responding um, to that? Because obviously they could just raise interest rates and kill inflation if they moved it fast enough and high enough. That's the, that's the second part of the whole piece, which is basically that interest rates remain manipulated, manipulated and uh, yield curve control and so forth. So you get, the, so you get the, 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 the very sharply negative real interest rates. That's absolutely also part of the piece. But don't forget, you get comp- gold compensates you for for three things really. I in my in my modelling of it, which is the historic CPI. So every time the dollar goes down six percent, so the purchasing power of the dollar goes down six percent, then that gets added added on to the fundamental value of gold. And then you also get compensated at present value, which is related to the real interest rate today. And policymakers really can influence that bit quite heavily. And uh, and then the, the last bit. Um, which is slightly more controversial, is that you get paid an element of the, the terminal value. So if you imagine your inflation-linked bond of 20 years, which is basically what a gold, gold is, it's, it's a zero-coupon 20-year tip, um, then if if you're predicting that the dollar is going to have very little value in 20 years, you will get an extra kicker for that because that's what that's your redemption value of your bond, effectively, when it comes. Yeah, so I mean that's that's fascinating. It always makes me think that I should buy gold when I, when I hear you talk like this. Um, and and talking of which, gold, the difference in gold. Look, if I don't mind, I mean gold is twelve trillion dollar asset. Yeah, gold moves twenty percent. It creates more value than the whole. It creates an entire Bitcoin on a twenty percent move. Gold goes up. Bitcoin goes up ten times. It creates one gold. So you've got to think. It's not a fair fight. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying you know compare one with another, and and yeah. you know, I, again, I think they're mutually exclusive, and you can use any arguments you know between the two. Um, but the actual uh, buying of gold at the moment, um, maybe you could tell me, is 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 actually difficult because the, the 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 price that we see on our screens for the futures price isn't actually the price you have, you pay when you when you go to buy gold either it's being marked up it's being marked up because of supply chain problems or that's being used as an excuse or there is actually less of it out there and more demand than we are led to believe because some um, people say it's being suppressed um the actual price is being suppressed I don't know if that's true or not and I don't know why or how they would do that, but that's certainly an argument that I've heard more than once. I've never, I've never believed in all that stuff, and and I've always tried to find explanations. And basically, the the the, the, the gold was trading at a hefty premium last summer. Okay, so it was it, it probably went to about about thirty or forty percent ahead of fair value. I mean, let's not forget, last summer there was a gold mini, mini gold bubble. It wasn't as big as 2011, but everyone was talking about gold, and Bitcoin was still 10K. So we came out of the COVID crisis, we're in lockdown, and everyone thought the world economy was going to shit and would never recover from this thing, but it did. And as soon as it started recovering and the evidence came through and the bond yield started moving around August, um, the, you know, we had a value rally, we had uh, Bitcoin go, go nuts, and then gold cooled down. So since we've had the, 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 the recovery in the economy that started about a year ago, uh, later than people remember, it did not start at the beginning of April 2020, it started later in the year, um, you know, the, the, the money came away from gold and went into nonsense like mem stocks and game, game shop or stock and Tesla and stuff like that. 
But but how tenable is that? I mean, surely you know things like Dogecoin and and the meme stocks and overvalued um, tech stocks will, by their very nature, have to correct and. People will then start looking at these hard assets. And gold, as as I say now, on the technicals, is is starting to move as we speak. It hasn't moved for a while, and it's been really, you know, in this, it's been stuck in this sideways range, and it's stuck out like a sore thumb. But it is actually starting to move. Absolutely. And we just broke um, eighteen fifty the other day. And I'm massively bullish on gold at the moment, much more so than anything else. Mm. Uh, gold and silver, because they just this their turn. And, and they are the proper assets for this. I think people have also assume that gold should have done so well in an inflationary environment. Getting back to your real rates um, point, we've seen huge moves at the short end of the real rates curve, but we haven't seen the big moves at the long end of the real, real rates curve until really the last couple of weeks. And so that's when we started to see a move. Uh, in fact, we saw real rates tightening um, early this year when gold came under pressure. You know, the big move, the big, big moves downward in real rates started in, what, 2018 to 2020? So gold had a massive repricing on the back of that. Um, and then has, has cooled down, uh, taken a break. I mean, I remember the 2000, and 2000 2011 bull market. Basically, gold just had, had these great rallies, 18-month consolidations, great rallies, 18-month consolidations. It just kept on happening. Mm. And we're just seeing that again. We had a great rally up to last summer. Um, and then when was that? You know, nearly 18 months, right? So we're in we're in the we're in the period where gold ought to do very well. Also, gold loves Q1, doesn't it? Yeah. So, and you mentioned yeah. the dollar as well. I mean, the dollar's going up at the moment, but dollar's going up. That's unhelpful. See, gold in looks a bit better. Yeah, but that could easily reverse. That could start to reverse next year, especially if if you know this talk of interest rates going up is once again quashed, and and then people start to worry about you know dollar inflation. So. You know, there there, yeah. there are some, there is definitely some huge moves coming, um, and the big arguments have been centered on inflation and deflation, and there seems to be more, more likely a an outcome for inflation and, uh, you know, th- than than deflation. But it's not going to be small inflation; it's going to be double digit and out of control um, over the coming years. So this, this, this is why I think your point about currency volatility is, is such a good one because it has, all the currencies have been relatively well behaved. And I, I just wondered whether this environment coming forward will be, um, one that finally breaks the Euro because that was all put together in a very stable environment. And the, the whole, you know, monetary system has become more and more unstable as we've gone forward. And there are more and more uh, competitors to it, um, not least obviously gold and silver. But now, now we've got a cryptocurrency that's been created um, since the euro was put together. Did you have any views on whether the euro will survive? Well, I've never been a great fan of the euro, but I actually think the dollar is going to be in a, in a proper bull market, and that's what's going to kill the fun because the Fed. What, what's what, you've got? Everyone's printing money, and the the, the second most important um, country in the world after America is China. And China, much more important than the EU, I think. And um, China's basically got it is in 2007 and is about to, to find a 2008. Now they'll probably manage it quite well because they're they're China and they're good at that sort of thing. But the underlying credit market is pr- pretty horrendous. And you know the Russell Napier thesis is very much that um, you know, when you have a a property bubble, then you know the, the policy response is a devaluation. 
So if they do that, then that's another force onto the US dollar upward. Um, and then the, the response is massive money printing, massive, massive, massive money printing, because even with the amount that we're seeing today, the dollar still going up, which just tells you where the, where the balance of power really is. And so, you know, there's huge, there's lots of printing happening in many different places, but, but uh, including the US and the fact that their currency um, is no longer falling like it did in 2020, it just shows you the natural um, um, force is a strong dollar. And that's going to be quite painful for lots of things. But I think that um, gold will, will, will still do okay in dollar terms, um, um, but do extremely well in non-dollar terms. Interesting. Um, so did you have any views on the broader equity markets or um, are you mainly focused now on your, on your uh, cryptocurrency analysis? No, I mean, Paul, I, I'm not a cryptocurrency uh, nut. I just happen to know a lot about it because I have a business around it. I spend most of my time looking, you know, with my multi-asset hat on, as I have done for 20 years. But I've always um, spent a disproportionate amount of my time looking at hard assets. I just, for some reason, have always found them interesting. Mm. So I'm pretty well versed on precious metals um, and increasingly these days uh, crypto. But in order to do that, you have to know what's going on in bonds and credit. Uh, and you have to know what's going on in the stock market and FX. So I check all, you know, all of these things every day. I'm a stock picker for the three, three lesser. I, I trade investment trusts for, the, for, for, for them as well, um, and 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 that sort of thing. So I'm very much a, a market all rounder. Um, and I, I suppose you know, if you're if you're going to have a special specialism these days, it may as well be something that, that that's important for the future. And 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 most people aren't so well versed. That's really the other angle of why I've put so much of my my time and effort into these areas. Um, but yeah, I think the equities, um, I, my views are not particularly original. I think the US stock market's a big fat bubble and it's going to go horribly wrong at some point. What sectors do you like? Are you like um, energy and uh, say uranium or, or you know, um, commodity currencies and commodity related stocks? Do you like those or? or? I mean, our portfolios, and I can, I can, I can um, talk about them in more detail, but one of them one of them is called soda in the Fleet Street letter, and soda is a very calm one. We don't trade very often. It's investment trusts. You know, we've got um, the 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 AVI Global Value Trust, the Caledonia Trust, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. I've always been a friend of that company, and then a couple of index funds in 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 UK and Japan. Uh, and then I own Capital Gearing and Ruther and a big pile of gold. I mean, it's a very simple portfolio. It doesn't change much. I think we've outperformed every year in six years against the FT Private Balanced Index, so that's now amounting to quite, quite, quite a lot. Um, and then, and then the big outperformance factor this year has been not only bonds, and um, which have which have been you know very harmful for balanced portfolios. And then on the, the whiskey side, so whiskey and soda, ha ha, that's such a joke. We've got a hard asset bit with with gold miners and silver and platinum, um, and some more gold and silver miners, Fresneo and and and, and Pog. And then I've got a couple of oil companies. I've got uh, Mediclinic, Melrose, Serco, the fantastic Airtel Africa, which is this mobile phone company that's big on um, in, in, in sort of digital money. BAE Systems, Hayes, Glaxo, Peter Cousins. There you go, an oil and gas ETF. So it's like uh, uh, lots and lots of ideas um, spread across um, the portfolios and it's well, you know, the, one of the reasons I, I like having the whiskey portfolio is because it gives you a lot to write about because there's, you know, you, you can always do a trade every month or something and update people. Whereas if you just did the soda portfolio with a few investment trusts, I mean, what the hell are you supposed to do as an investment writer? 
when you when you have a low, a low turnover approach. <laughs> so we have one portfolio that moves and one portfolio that doesn't move. Repeat yourself frequently. That's that's never, that's always stood me in good stead. <laughs> <laughs> but I love I love writing the three three letter. It just it makes me think every week. Robin Griffiths, who was one of my mentors, HSBC chief technical strategist, he said, "You don't know what you think until you've written it down." It's absolutely true. So if you go through the discipline of writing. Then, then it really does help you to understand what your views are, and of course they should be shifting all the time, every little bit, every little, little and often, and rather than being stuck in some some silo somewhere. Fascinating. It was very generous of you to list all the stocks that you that that uh, you had. So that's um, yeah, I think people are going to be well. I'm certainly going to be listening to that back again and and investigating them. Um, but um, Tim, what, what do you think? Is there, are there any any more questions that uh, I can't I can't think of any? Is there anything? Is there any ground in either crypto or traditional assets we haven't covered that you'd like to have talked about, Charlie? We haven't. We haven't covered the most important subject in the world. We haven't. Versus gold. I think I think we just need to give that one more kick. <laughs> Go for it. Look, so my, my view, and, I, and, I, and, and can you please say, is, do you have a disclosure? So, Charlie, do you have a disclosure to make? Yeah. Charlie, do you have a disclosure to make? Oh, as it happens, on Wednesday the 19th of January, uh, Bytree is launching an ETF in Switzerland that combines gold and Bitcoin. Right. You heard it here, you heard it here first, folks. And um, it's taken us a long time to get this off the, off the ground to, to try and get the um, parties to, to work and, and, and there's some technicalities to it because they're obviously very different types of things. And this is real Bitcoin, real gold. Now, most Britons can't buy this because the FCA will ban all ETFs um, that contain crypto. So that's a shame. But I want to tell you what I'm doing anyway. And um, it's just obvious to me that whenever Bitcoin has, has a bad moment, gold seems to step in. And whenever... Gold has a very bad moment. Bitcoin seems to step in. Now, how would you weight Bitcoin and gold? Well, if you're aggressive, you could do 50-50. What we've decided to do is volatility weighting, so inverse volatility. Bitcoin's very volatile. Gold's very calm. So you measure that over the past year and flip them around, and you end up with about 82% in gold and 18% in, in Bitcoin. Now, over the long term, um, if the volatility of um of Bitcoin fell to gold's levels, it would end up being a 50-50 fund. And if Bitcoin decided to die, the volatility would increase even more and your exposure would be very, very light. So I think it's a very sort of um, sensible approach on how to um, hold these two assets. And uh, the, the second point is you, you get a bit of value from rebalancing because every month you have to go back to your target weight. And so if one of them's gone up a lot and the other one hasn't, then, then you're, you're buying the cheaper one and selling the more expensive one. So there's a little bit of excess return from that. But you end up with a product that's, you know, uh, an outcome of uh, only Bitcoin and gold with, with volatility of around 20, so not much more than the, than the stock market, basically. Um, and I think it's probably a really easy way to own Bitcoin while sleeping at night. The only thing you need for this portfolio is for inflation. So if you uh, if we go back to deflation, if we had a 2008 type event or a March 2020, I expect it to go down. But provided there's some sort of inflation in the world, then I would expect um, this thing to do quite well. And the drivers either going to be gold or Bitcoin. We very rarely both at the same time. Um, the, the 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 point here is that you know in a risk on world when stock markets are, are buoyant, uh, Bitcoin goes up and it loves it. Uh, but when everything gets a bit cold and we start worrying about um, the future, um, but yet the inflation is still burning away, 
then then that's when gold kicks in. So I just think this is this is if you if you were to rerun the 1970s, you know, what you really wanted was a blend of gold and silver. And silver was already established. Gold was the newcomer because of price fixing and so forth. But but to hold the blend was superior to one or the other, uh, particularly on a risk-adjusted basis. And I just think going forward, Bitcoin and gold, um, which we call bold, by the way, um, is a very is a very simple thing to to grasp. And if you don't want to buy my product, you don't have to. You can do it yourself. But but do remember to rebalance periodically. It's a shame you're not doing it in conjunction with Deutsche Bank, because then I could crowbar my "don't mention the VAR" joke, which I've been trying to. Been trying to popularise for the last ten years, and it's sunk without a trace. Like, like, like all of my humour. No, but Tim, that's actually one of your best ones. Well, this this says a lot for the worst ones, doesn't it? I actually quite caveat do. caveat emptor. Yeah. Time for media picks, I think, Paul. I think so. Um, do you want to go first, Charlie? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Book. Do you want book first? Well, whatever, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever you like. We're multi. We're multi multi platform. So, um, Simon Murray, who's heard of Simon Murray? Name rings a bell, but I'm not sure why. Now, I'm pretty sure he was the CEO of Hutchison in Hong Kong. Um, he's basically an Englishman. I think he must be about 80 now. And he, at the age of 18, when all his friends were joining, um, becoming officers in the British Army, he became a, uh, a legionnaire in the French Florian Legion. And um, he wrote a fantastic book called called Legionnaire some years ago. But he just, he just wrote a second book, which which was a can't put down book, um, which is um, no nobody. I think it's called Nobody Will Shoot You If You Make Them Laugh. <laughs> and he's just fantastic. And this guy came out of the Legion after I think he did five years there. The stories are horrendous. Literally, they decapitated bodies of the enemy because they couldn't carry them back across the. Um, the, 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 the mountains, the, the Atlas Mountains, I think it was. Um, and they would have heads in the back of in their Bergens and they'd take them back for, for, to the intelligence for identifying um, which enemies they had, they had captured and killed. And um, they would put heads in the soup as a practical joke. Such was the, um, the sort of lad culture of the French Foreign Legion. I mean, and, I thought my, and I thought my jokes were bad. Yeah. Which, to be fair, they still are, but... Uh... He then goes on to, um, he, he has a career with Jardine Matheson um, in Hong Kong and basically becomes a Taipan and becomes Lee Ka Shing's right, right hand man, becomes very successful in private equities. He's got this most colourful career and he seems to be friends with everyone from, um, from, from um, you know, Warren Buffett downwards. And um, it, it, it just, you know, someone I have a huge aberration for and those stories of the French Foreign Legion are extraordinary I mean I spent a little time in the army um, doing what the conventional route becoming a, a British Guards officer but I really admire someone who wants to become a private soldier in the French Foreign Legion at a time when it was a pretty brutal place to be <laughs> so yeah that would be my book uh, Simon Murray um, um, no one will kill you if you make them laugh brilliant sorry I saw a great reality TV show on, I think it was Channel 4, some years back, and it was about people applying to join the French Foreign Legion, just regular members of the public. And what I what I loved about it more than anything else was one line that the sort of, you know, the Martinet recruitment sergeant gave, which is um, they're, all, they're all going through some various forms of physical torture, and he just said, pain is just weakness leaving the body. Which I thought was terrific. Yeah. Sounds good. Brilliant. So, Tim, what what what's yours for this week? 
You, I think, Paul, know already, because we discussed it very, very briefly before we came on air. So mine is uh, a 50-minute video that I've only just only just watched this morning. Um, Dr. David Martin, who they are, the names and faces of the people who are killing humanity, which is a, a presentation um, at something called the Red Pill Expo. And David Martin is an expert in patent law, and he names the names of the guilty parties around covid it's available on Rumble, and we'll put the link up in the show notes, but it's quite extraordinary, and that's all I'm going to say on the topic. Okay, brilliant. Um, mine's going to be a Veritasium. I can't remember whether I shared this with you, Tim, or whether I did it with the um, you know wider community, but um, it's just an absolutely fascinating video that they've put together. Veritasium are brilliant, the YouTube channel. Um Veritas is truth, isn't it? Latin for truth. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. And it's usually science-based, but this this one is just like, I think it's mind-blowing. So it's the universe is hostile to computers. So basically what you happen what you have is um uh out in the out in the sort of universe in space, you, you have these particles that that cause um interference, for what of a better word, with computers, and they can flip bits so a bit can be flipped on a computer and happens regularly by the way so that um you, a number can change so if you know how numbers are created in binary um if you flip one of the bits then it can change it by a small amount if it's the early ones or it can be a massive amount if it's further down and this just happens naturally and it, it means that there are software errors that that occur because they're temporary, because you can flip the, the bit back, so it's not a hardware error, it's a software error. But it, it's the implications of this that, that make it so that, obviously, you need backups when it comes to your computers. Sometimes when you see the blue screen of death on the Microsoft screens, that's actually caused by that. And it's it starts off explaining how this affected a um, an election count, which is quite, quite amusing. Um, and they couldn't work out how it happened, and then eventually it was pointed to this. But it, it also has wider implications, because apparently this affects our DNA as well. So changes in DNA... Um, are affected randomly by by these particles, and that's what causes changes to us, us and and other species on the planet. So it's just utterly mind blowing. I I thought and um, really well worth the twenty minutes that it is. I listen to things at double speed usually anyway, so um, it only ends up being relatively short. But I I thought a lot of what they put out is brilliant. But this is you know, exceptional. It's had 10 million views in two months, just to give you an wow. idea of, of how popular this particular one's been. But it's well worth looking at. It's it's It sort of makes me realize how small we are in this universe again and, and how there are so many things that affect us that we just have very little idea um, about. But it's just brilliant. So, Charlie, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to hear your views. And... Just as a reminder for people who want to get your research, who want to find you, maybe talk to you um, and, and, and get more information, how would they do that? Where are you? Um, well, that has been a pleasure. If, if people want to um, find my old world coverage, then Fleet Street Letter, Google that. If people want to find my new world, um, which is gold and crypto, then follow me on Bytree. So Bytree.com, B-Y-T-E-Tree.com. And there's a free sign up I write once a week. And, um, you know, join the party. Uh, sorry, is that, you're saying that's free research, is it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, most of our data is free. 
the, be- the best research is free, Paul. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. No, I mean, just a, just for a, the listeners. Yeah. Yep. We have a paid bit. So basically, the way we anything that looks a bit more like investment advice is behind a paywall, and part of that's for legal reasons. Mm. And so when we're talking more specifically about um, you know tokens or what we think Bitcoin's going to do, I don't really want that in public. So that's behind the paywall, the quieter conversation. Um, but but the but the main piece I write each week about the crypto space and, and Golden's book and so forth is, is very much public and free. And loads you, of our data is free too. I'm sorry, I spoke over you. Loads, loads of our data is also free too. So have a look at Bytree.com and look at gold, silver, um, ETF flows, different things I've discussed. You know, it's, most of it's free. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again. And are you on Twitter as well, or do you not tweet very much? Yeah, yeah, on Twitter, at Atlas Pulse. At Atlas Pulse. Well, fantastic. Charlie Morris, once again, thank you so much. Paul, Tim, thank you. Cheers, Charlie. All the very best. Enjoy your day. And thank you so much for listening. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.